they told me that homosexuality is a form of cannibalism. They said that because of my trauma, I felt a deficit in my own womanhood. And in order to make up for that deficit, I was siphoning and cannibalizing from other women to make up for my own lack of self-worth. And they believe that. You must be some kind of therapist. Today I am here with Leighton and we are going to talk about all the interesting stuff, her D-trans journey. We're going to talk about health and what she's learned about the endocrine and nervous systems. Um, from her journey as a detransitioner, we're going to talk about mental health, somatic stuff, a little bit about her D-trans lawsuit and surviving a cult. So her story just has so many interesting pieces today. Unfortunately, I will let my listeners know that this is the first interview I am doing after my most recent COVID infection. And in case you're not aware, I'm a long hauler. I've had ongoing symptoms for two years after my first infection. So as you can imagine, having a second infection is quite overwhelming. I am not my best self today, but I'm really happy that Leighton is the first person I'm speaking to as I'm getting back to work because She's been there. Uh, she, she's really understanding. We were just talking before the interview about um, dealing with COVID and long haul symptoms. So um, hopefully she can uh, bear with my brain fog and we can still pull out the interesting parts of her story. Um, anyway, Leighton, welcome. I'm so glad that you can make it today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so your story has so many interesting pieces to it. You um, are currently in a lawsuit about the care that you received um, in as a treatment for your previous gender dysphoria. Um, you're only able to say so much about that lawsuit, of course, and you're going to, you know, stick with whatever your lawyer has advised you to say there. But um, some of the reasons behind your lawsuit are, are interesting, not only kind of the standard stuff that listeners of this podcast are familiar with with regard to how gender affirming care is not based in science and it's, you know, basically malpractice as far as I'm concerned. But but the factors that led to you seeking that treatment in the first place are some interesting things, you know, surviving a cult. Um, I believe that you, um, oh my goodness, my brain fog is so bad that what's on my mind is multiple personalities, even though that's actually not what it's called anymore. It's okay. <laughs> like I'm supposed to know this. So when people think of multiple personalities, the technical modern term for that is, help me out here. Dissociative Dis identity disorder. Dissociative identity disorder. I know that, people. I'm just, just coming back from COVID, so bear with me. It's the brain fog. <laughs> so um, so I, I think you might be the first, at least the first public D-trans lawsuit that anyone's familiar with where there's this dissociative identity disorder part of the picture of, of what got missed. So I'm just going to sort of leave it to you. Where do you think would be an interesting place to begin with your story and how you got here? Yeah, I guess I can just kind of start from the beginning. And if you want me to elaborate on anything in particular, I will. But yeah, essentially, um, I was in a religious cult for a for many, many years, basically up until a decade ago. And um, during that time, I'm a lesbian, um, and I had to go through conversion therapy twice. Um, the first time was only for like a weekend, which 
was still traumatic, but didn't really affect me very much. And then the second time was about nine months. Um, and that was very intense <laughs> during that time and paired with just a lot of the uh, religious trauma that I had, a lot of the emotional um, and mental trauma that I had. There was just a lot going on in my life that caused me to heavily, heavily dissociate. Um, and I also want to say I had when I was around five years old, um, I had a traumatic injury to my head. I still have a massive scar on my forehead up here from it that um, basically caused my skull to crack open. And I fully believe that that injury made me extremely prone to dissociation from a very young age because it was after that that I first remember having dissociative episodes and whatnot. So I think that that just made me a lot more susceptible than most people would be to that kind of response. So having that happen to me at such a young age and then having all of this trauma, it just felt like my life was one trauma after the next. Um, and at the same time, from the age of uh, I was around six years old, um, when I started being heavily medicated for mental health issues. So that was really bad for my nervous system, really bad for me mentally and emotionally. Um, so I had all of these factors that were causing me to be kind of unable to develop a, an accurate relationship with myself. Um, I didn't really know who I was. I was extremely dissociated from myself. I, I, I was very mentally split, um, for, for lack of a better word. And that just kind of positioned me to be the perfect target for something like gender ideology, all of those things, and then leaving a cult. And in, in, in that, when I had left the cult, I didn't have any of my friends anymore. I didn't have my job. I didn't have my family. I completely left states. Um, I only had my wife who also left with me at the time. And yeah, and, and basically nothing else. So it was just us. And all of this trauma that I had, all of this dissociation that I had, and then me seeking help for that and, and the help that I sought is what essentially led me down that path. You just said so much in such a short period <laughs> of time. It's, it's and, a lot. and I'm so glad that you brought up the conversion therapy piece earlier, because with my brain fog, that was the other like really interesting piece of your story that I meant to mention up front. So I'm really glad that you brought it up early. Um, because as anyone who's familiar with this podcast knows, we talk about the conversion therapy issue. We talk about some of the lies that people have been spreading about the idea of conversion therapy as it pertains to gender dysphoria, um, and its, yeah. and its treatments. Um, and I have said in the past that conversion therapy is pretty rare, you know, in terms of like the, the torture of homosexuals and the attempt to change sexual orientation, like that that's not a thing that licensed credible therapists do yada yada that said i've never said that it's non-existent because every now and then there's like someone who's actually been through what you've been through and so i'm really grateful to have the first opportunity so far on this podcast to speak with someone who has been through the conversion therapy that does still exist or did still exist 10 or 20 years ago or whenever that was um so i have so many questions about that if you don't mind um for it. so First of all, was this a licensed therapist or was this like a religious leader in your cult or? So the first person um, I believe is licensed, but I, I'll just say his name because I'm not 100% sure. Um, his name's Stephen Bennett. 
He's actually a really nice person, <laughs> um, which a lot of people wouldn't expect, but but he believes that he's ex-gay and um, he has religious motivation behind this. So, yeah, um, I'm pretty sure that he's licensed, but I would obviously feel more comfortable giving his name in case in case I'm wrong, um, because this was a very, very long time ago. And then the second time I went through it, what I know that they weren't licensed. And that was the, when I went through it for nine months um, because it happened through a teen challenge facility. Ooh, like, okay. When you say a teen challenge facility, are you talking about like um, those programs that try to set teens straight? Yeah. Were you like a problem child that your parents sent off to boot camp or what? Um, well, I initially went into Teen Challenge. Um, I actually went in by choice um, after I had my overdose and near-death experience and, and everything I had there. Just throw that in there. Overdose, yeah. near-death experience. I know. I know. How I feel like when I talk about my life, it's just like the craziest, weirdest things. Um, I get it. But how old were you at this time? Um, at that point in time, I was um, 18. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it, so you went into it voluntarily because you're like, I need help. Yes. Although I, okay. I didn't know that I was going to be experiencing gay conversion therapy while I was there. I, I thought it was more like a rehab program. And I basically only went into it because after I had the overdose and near-death experience, um, I was afraid of myself. And my near-death experience was a highly spiritual experience for me. But the only framework that I had of spirituality at all was the cult that, that I was raised in. So um, I had this very religious, dogmatic mindset about it. And so I kind of thought that must be what I experienced because I didn't have any, any other foundation, any other framework. Um, and so... I thought that in order for me to really get my life together, I had to give everything to God. But it was through that very dogmatic framework that I no longer believe in and no longer follow. So um, then after being in this in this teen challenge facility where you don't have access to the outside world, you don't have a cell phone, you don't have computer access. Um, you have to follow a certain curriculum and they assign you reading material and you're meeting with these different people who are telling you what to believe every day. I was in such a vulnerable place that when the gay conversion therapy started, I was thinking like they're right. And, and uh, they were saying things to me like, think about it. You never would have been um, a drug addict if you weren't a lesbian. You never would have been an alcoholic if you weren't a lesbian. You were you were doing this because you knew that it was wrong. And and I was just so vulnerable that I that I believed it um, because I, I was scared to get back to where I was before. And also because, like I said, I, I only had that cult framework before. So it wasn't it, it really wasn't that abnormal to me. Um, it, it seemed it just seemed normal to me already. It just seemed like what had already been my life. So I felt like I was just accepting what I had been raised to believe was true anyway. Are you a therapist looking for a professional community that hasn't gone mad? Consider joining Critical Therapy Antidote. 
CTA provides a platform for clinicians, trainers, and supervisors who want to protect traditional therapy. This international network brings together therapists like you with a range of opportunities for networking and professional development, including talks by distinguished speakers, group peer consultations, webinars, trainings, and professional development seminars. Visit sometherapist.com CTA to learn more. That's sometherapist.com slash CTA. So it sounds like they, they sort of like gradually led you to this point. After you were in the program, you'd signed yourself up for this. You were being really vulnerable, asking for help, saying like, I know I need to turn my life around. I don't trust myself. And they sort of gradually led you to this, hey, actually, it's the same sex attraction that's really the cause of your problems. And so was there an underlying belief that somehow being gay was a choice, that it was, and if so, like, what was the narrative that they came up with or that you came up with at the time about how you chose to be lesbian or how you could choose not to be lesbian anymore? Yeah, so um, they told me exactly what Stephen Bennett had told me the first time, um, which was that it was a trauma response. Um, they told me that it was because I was raised not knowing my biological father and that even though I did have a father figure, that I had this big trauma around that. And they also said that it was, um, you know, because of the the kind of tumultuous relationship that I had with my mom growing up. And um, yeah, they said it was childhood sexual abuse, like all of these different things I had gone through that they, they just pulled from that and and said that that was what I was experiencing and then they told me that homosexuality is a form of cannibalism and that because of my trauma I felt a yeah they said that because of my trauma I felt a deficit in my own womanhood and in order to make up for that deficit I was siphoning and cannibalizing from other women to huh. make up for my own lack of self-worth and they believe well yeah okay i mean for the record my father abandoned me and i have a fraught relationship with my mom and i turned out straight so i don't know that we can just you know i, I don't know that their logic is is based in anything but um okay so um so your same-sex attraction is a trauma reaction because you feel insecure in your femininity and some kind of disconnect some kind of problem with the masculine and so therefore instead of being attracted to men you are cannibalizing the energy of other women in an attempt to fill some hole in your soul um this is this is the logic so then what's the solution how do you stop cannibalizing women and and heal your mommy and daddy issues and <laughs> find yourself a good christian man or good whatever cult this was man how, how is that supposed to work? Um, they basically just told me that I needed to surrender more to God and that if I cared more about God than I cared about myself, that it would go away. Um, and it's hard for people to understand. Um, and I think it it's probably also just the fact that maybe I just didn't meet anyone for a while that I was actually attracted to. But I had a, a very long period where I genuinely thought that it was working. And I thought that I wasn't attracted to women anymore. And not only that, but I thought that I was starting to become attracted to men. 
Um, and I realized once I would get into a relationship with a man and it would start to kind of get to a certain point, I would realize I just don't like them. But I thought it it must just be this one person because I still couldn't accept that I had put so much work and effort into something and truly started to believe something that wasn't actually true because if that hadn't been the problem, then what was the problem? You know, like why, why was I a drug addict before? Like they had created this entire narrative around it. And because I was so vulnerable and honestly, um, I really was at the point in time where, I mean, when you're raised in a cult, you're used to everyone just telling you what the truth is all the time. I didn't even have the capacity to come up with my own, my own idea of what was real and what wasn't. Um, that's something that I, I didn't have the capacity to do until years after leaving the cult because I just didn't know how to think for myself. I had never had the opportunity to do that. So yeah, it was a it was it was really intense. It, it was it was crazy. Um and they they never once, despite the fact that in one of my um one of like the lesbian relationships I had been in, despite the fact that I had been groomed in that relationship, which was something that I didn't even really process until years later. They didn't even bring that up to me. Nothing. No, it was it was me being evil, siphoning from other women, being an energy cannibal, <laughs> an energy vampire hmm. to try and make up for something. So um, kind of their method in there was to take everything that you had done wrong. And and of course, we should take responsibility for our part in things. Absolutely. But they were making us responsible for our trauma in a way that didn't really make any sense, you know, um, and made it very difficult to heal from because it, it disconnected me from the reality of my trauma even more. You said that you had been in a lesbian relationship that was harmful to you. And so they weren't in any kind of position based based on their ideological belief system. They weren't in any kind of position to say, we're so sorry that that happened to you. Tell us about how she treated you. You don't deserve to be treated that way. Instead of just treating it as its own unique experience, there's sort of this like glossing over of how you'd been harmed by that because there's this assumption, well, if anything bad happens to you in the context of you being a lesbian, then it's your sin and you deserve it. And we don't need to acknowledge how you've been harmed by this. We just need to make you stop being a lesbian. Yeah. Um, and and I'm glad that you phrased it that way because it reminded me of something else that they said that was actually extremely embarrassing for me at the time because in this facility, I was living um, with six other women who were um, kind of in the same place as me, plus some staff members. So it's all these other women. And um, for the most part, all of them are straight. And they're being told that this lesbian cannibal <laughs> lives with them. Um, and <laughs> and they would frequently single me out like the staff members would in front of the other women and say that I was a lesbian also because I was possessed with a spirit of lust. And because of that, you know, if we were getting ready for events or something, um, I used to be a cosmetologist and I wasn't allowed to even do the other the other girl's hair or anything like that because they said it was going to turn me on. Um, and it, it became this very traumatic experience for me where I was I was 
isolated from the other women in a way that was just very uncomfortable, very difficult um, to deal with while I was in there for that entire time. And and I think that that also really impacted the amount that I was dissociating from that part of myself. And I just wanted to be what I thought was normal based on their framework for what normal was, you know? It sounds really he- heavy on the shame and almost like creating paranoia. Like you're starting with people who are, like you said, you're in one of those vulnerable positions in your life. You don't trust yourself because you're a young adult with a rough past. She's made some poor decisions. So you're you're already in this place where you don't trust yourself. And then they're just kind of creating this paranoia of creating the sense in you that you deserve every bad thing that's ever happened to you because of this sin. Um, and then also creating a sense in the women around you that they deserve to live with this scary predator latent. Yes. Um, because of everything bad that they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're all being taught to fear each other, which, yeah. I mean, it makes sense for a cult. It's not surprising because this is a divide and conquer strategy, right? You, you guys are actually going through this together. If anybody's in a position to understand each other, it's it's everyone who was going through that, that, that cohort of women. Like, you guys mm-hmm. could have actually maybe banded together. So it makes sense that they would, like, try to instill this kind of fear and paranoia um, so that you can't even support each other in these very innocuous ways. And by the way, was that men or women or both who were instilling these messages that Leighton can't do the other girl's hair and stuff like that? Because it sounds to me it was women. Okay. Because my first read on that was like, that sounds like a projection of like some horny, creepy man. Like, because women aren't like that. Like women, I mean, like, you know, yeah, like I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't trust certain men to be in a position to like do women's hair and stuff. But like, um, it was weird. Like, you're right. Women aren't like that. And I remember thinking, <laughs> why would that happen, especially as a cosmetologist? Um, it was really bizarre. And you're right. They they did want to pit us against each other. Um, they didn't want us having relationships with each other I mean we weren't even really allowed to have personal conversations with each other and there was I had a roommate um I had two roommates and one of them was bisexual and they basically told her like no you're just straight and um we got along really well there was zero attraction there we were just friendly with each other and we had one incident where we were sitting at the dinner table and we were trying to pass salt to each other across the table and there was one person in between and it was one of those situations where every time we went to go in front of the person to pass the salt they would lean forward and so then we would try and do it behind and they would lean back so we were like laughing because we're just trying to pass the salt to each other and this person doesn't realize it and they keep blocking it and the staff members saw us laughing with each other and we were not allowed to speak for two weeks because they said that we were flirting because we were laughing about something that was just objectively funny and they pulled me out um they took me for a drive and lectured me the entire time then they did the same thing with her then they told everyone to keep an eye on us and and yeah it was it was very intense um I mean all of this happened to me a very long time ago but even still when I specifically talk about those things I get that somatic shaking um that happens in my body that I just kind of let happen because yeah, there there was so much shame and and just being extremely ostracized. Um, and 
yeah and and you're right this i mean this stuff is incredibly rare and it, it usually happens in these extreme religious cults um i've never known anyone that's had something like this happen to them outside of a religious cult but i do know other people that in this same cult went through the exact same thing that i did if you're looking for a simple way to take better care of yourself check out organifi i start every day with a glass of their original green juice powder mixed with water it contains moringa ashwagandha chlorella spirulina matcha wheatgrass beets turmeric mint lemon and coconut water 100% organic with no added sugar. It's the best tasting superfood supplement I've ever tried. It's super easy to make and it makes me feel good. Organifi also makes several other delicious and nutritious superfood blends, such as red juice, immune support, protein powders, a golden milk mix, and even superfood hot cocoa. Check out the collection at organifi.com slash some therapist. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash some therapist and use code some therapist to take 20% off your order. And this image and, and part of me for laughing so much in this interview, it's partly because I'm a little like loopy and out of it. But I also no, I don't no, mean to be fine. dismissive of your experience. It's like I feel like you almost have to laugh at how ridiculous some of these things are. And this idea of like, I mean, you're oh, 18 yeah. years old. First of all, you are legally an adult. You, you're a free person. Yeah. And just the innocence of that interaction. Like, it's such a small moment, like trying to pass a salt. It's, it's almost like a slapstick, like goofy comedy of errors, just tiny little moment. Yeah. And, and you're at an age where there are people doing far worse things. Um, but like most people your age are looking for friends. That's what being 18 is all about, right? It's meeting your people. It's having good times. It's like having fun, goofing off. It's a, it's a great time to do that. And so here you are just having like a really innocent moment of being a couple of 18 year olds, having fun, goofing off in a very innocent setting. And it's being like demonized. It just sounds very heavy handed with the shame, the paranoia, um, and, and you're in a vulnerable position. So even though technically you were free to leave, um, psychologically you weren't free. And there was a lot that had sound like happened up until that point um, with your experiences growing up in the cult that, that rendered you um, very vulnerable to that. So as far as the conversion therapy aspect of it goes, it sounds like it was psychological. It was this messaging um, was there any aversive conditioning or like any other techniques that they use to try to convert you? Um, not in Teen Challenge specifically. I mean, um, it was, well, they would do weird things. I don't know if you've ever heard of the series Love Comes Softly. It's like a Christian romance series. And they would play that. And um, it, it seems really innocent just thinking of them like playing a show or something but the entire reason why they would do that is because I had to watch it to learn what heterosexual relationships were like you know because I, I had never seen them before <laughs> in my life never seen heterosexuals before so clearly I needed to learn how they would interact and actually that goes back to um the in the initial conversion therapy that I went to with Stephen Bennett where he took me on this like pretend date and um because I, I had to learn how to have like a normal, healthy conversation with a man. Really weird things like that. Um, but yeah, a lot of it was they relied really heavily on shame 
on um, me feeling ostracized from my peers. And, and I'm not the only one. I mean, even when I graduated from Teen Challenge, I know other people that went in that were lesbian or bisexual that went through the exact same thing. And it was heavily traumatic for them. Um, but also, yeah, along with that psychological conditioning, they would say things to me. Um, and again, because I didn't trust myself, I believed them. They would say, if you leave here, you're going to like you're literally gonna die did, did they explain how like like you're gonna get hit by a bus or yeah. like like you'll meet a lesbian cannibal who's gonna eat you <laughs> like no they um they i mean they basically had convinced me that if i left i was going to overdose again or i was going to get in some other really bad really bad experience. Um, and they would use other people who had left before the nine months, which is kind of ridiculous. It's like nine months. There's nothing special about that. Like if you stay until, until the end, you're not going to just have something magical happen where you just never, never relapse or get into a lesbian relationship again. Um, but, but that's what they had convinced me of. And, um, yeah, so they really had me convinced that if I left, something bad was going to happen to me to the point where when my nine months actually came up, I didn't want to leave. Um, and I actually asked them if I could stay longer because I was really scared. And it made me feel a little bit better knowing that I was leaving Teen Challenge and going right back into the cult. And I was going to have that as like a support system and um, guardrails kind of. But um, it also like even being in the cult, it wasn't as um as serious as teen challenge in the sense that I wasn't having like like I still had some free time being in a cult you know like I I had more time to myself more alone time which is is how you kind of end up with the ability to do things that you're not supposed to do anyway because you can't be watched 24 7 when there are thousands of people <laughs> in this you know, community uh, opposed to in Teen Challenge, you can be watched 24-7 because there's only six or seven of you. So, yeah, they, they had me very afraid and I didn't want to leave. When the and so were you born into this cult? So there were like multiple locations of this. Um, there's basically there's a name for which which what is kind of um, the umbrella term for every single one of these. Uh, communities that are all essentially the same one. So when I was around five or six, we were in the first location. Um, and then a few years later, we went into the second location. And the, each location got periodically worse. Um, I don't know if it's just because of how things progressed with the times. And maybe people just felt like they could be more open with things. Um, things weren't being hidden as much. And then the the third location was the last location that I was in, and that one was definitely the worst. And I, I never say the name of the one that I was in the most for obvious reasons, um, but I will say some affiliated cults uh, that are, when I say affiliated, I mean, it's literally the exact same thing. Um, and I uh, I went to one of these places and was, was closely involved with them um, because of this, but yeah, so a lot of people will know, uh, like Bethel in Redding, California, is one of these um, cults that is extremely well known. A lot of people know about just the stuff that they do and um, how 
abusive they are and how crazy a lot of the things are there. And then also the International House of Prayer in um, Kansas City, which I was also heavily involved in. And the International House of Prayer, um, I mean, they there's a Rolling Stones article about a murder that happened there. I mean, it is very well known as a cult. So, um, yeah, and then the smaller locations, even though they're affiliated, there is not as much out there. So it's kind of a little bit more dangerous to talk about them when they haven't been as exposed, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, and this is based in Christianity? Yeah. Like quasi-Christian, loosely. <laughs> loosely Christian. Um, so you were in it from yeah. a very young age. And uh, you told me before we started recording that your parents are now out of it. Um, I know this might be kind of jumping around a little bit, but have you gone through some kind of process with your parents of sorting out what happened there and its impact on you, its impact on them and your relationship? Oh, yeah. Um, If my parents could do things differently... Like they would have just kept us home and homeschooled us <laughs> forever and, and kept us away from anything like that at this point. Um, it was really hard on our relationship at first, but in a weird way, the fact that we all went through a cult together has made my parents and brothers and I so much closer than than we ever could have been before, I think, um, and really created a space for a lot of very difficult conversations um in the beginning there were a lot of boundaries that that had to be in place and there was a lot of anger and frustration um that I had towards them and they had a lot of confusion because you know they didn't go into it knowing this is a cult and and I'm bringing my children into it it was something that that was harder for them to kind of reconcile with I think because they had to reconcile with oh and our children were also exposed to this if that makes sense um so yeah it was a it was a lot for them to process and I mean uh you know my mom went to therapy for a while and and I was in and out of therapy and and we've had so many conversations about things and um I don't know if that answers your question but but we're in a really really good place now and yeah it I never felt like I had a close relationship with my family at all growing up and and now we are just so close in a way that I really have to attribute to kind of going through that. I'm very glad to hear that there's at least that silver lining that you've gone closer with your family and that you've been able to sort out the impact of all that on you guys. So, so, I mean, where we left off, you were 18, maybe 19 at this point. When you graduate from the program, you don't want to leave because you, at this point, you're just full of shame and fear and guilt and paranoia and you don't trust your own judgment you feel like your identity and your safety um depends on sort of allegiance to this group that knows the answers and and so eventually though you kind of have to exit this high control small community into a larger high control community of your um greater religious community so what was that transition like and then how how did you eventually get out of this yeah so um someone who was like a leader at the current um location that my family was at at the time basically came into the teen challenge center and talked to me tried to figure out what she could 
um, kind of immediately plugged me into when we go back. They wanted me in different leadership positions and stuff like that. Um, and I felt really happy about that because I really craved the structure and I, um, I wanted to immediately be doing things. I felt like if I wasn't, something bad was going to happen to me, you know? <laughs> so yeah, basically I, um, left the teen challenge immediately the day of, I went back into the location of the cult and, um, immediately started getting involved with different things. There were so many different programs that they had there. Um, and slowly over time, I worked my way up into multiple different leadership positions. And um, yeah, I, I was doing quite a lot there. And, and there was also a lot of, you know, as I had said before, there was a lot of like religious abuse, a lot of spiritual abuse. They do something called Sozo there, which I don't know if you've ever heard of before, um, but it's essentially like a, a really bizarre kind of hypnosis. And essentially in this, they um, will kind of try and rewrite negative experiences that you have and tell you that things didn't happen if they haven't, if they actually happened. It's basically like getting gaslit, um, but then but they make you think that it's it's a good thing and that it's going to help you. And then in that really vulnerable hypnotic state, they will also tell you a lot of different things. And I had um, a person over me the entire time I was there who was essentially a handler. And if you were a leader, if you were in a leadership position, especially a high up one, you had to have someone like that. Um, and she did the sozo for me. And one of the times doing the sozo, she was like, saying things to me about how I'm not special and I shouldn't think that I'm special and um and all of these really weird weird things that that were kind of designed to while I was in that vulnerable space make me feel like I was nothing outside of this organization and that's something that I just didn't even clock that they were doing at the time um so yeah I had a lot of really weird just weird experiences there with that um, I didn't have any real connections with people. I felt um, like my entire life revolved around this organization that at the end of the day, I didn't really feel was actually offering me anything in return. I didn't feel like I could actually live out my purpose there. And it was a really confusing time because I had dedicated my entire life to everyone there. And I, I genuinely believed that um, my identity existed because of them, that I didn't have an identity outside of them and everything they told me to do, I, I did. And if they told me not to do something, um, because like I said, I had this person over me that was essentially controlling every aspect of my life. I mean, she would tell me who I could date, who I couldn't date, where I could go, where I couldn't go. And essentially, there were a lot of a lot of things happening that were massive red flags, including this program that they had um, that I will said the name of the program, but I probably should just leave out the specific name. But there was a program um, where they did this obscure and it was it was private, like it was secret. People weren't supposed to know about this missionary training that they would do where they would make people cut off chicken heads and and they would like shoot guns into the air uh when you were blindfolded so that you didn't know if someone was being shot or not um you know to prepare you in case you were a missionary and and someone kidnapped you and they were going to shoot you or something like really bizarre things like that they would make people stand in fields with bags of flour over their head 
um, for hours at a time. Um, things that ended up really traumatizing people and, and someone had ran away from that and no one ever heard from her again. Like really, really crazy things. And, um, and I, I started seeing a lot of people becoming really harmed. And I also had a situation where I, I was like a public speaker there and I, I was leading over so many people and always having to speak about things. And they always wanted me to talk about being ex-gay. And they wanted me to write a book with them about being ex-gay. And I just had the worst feeling about it. I had such a bad feeling that that I was being used and they they wanted to kind of control the narrative. And and this this organization, um, they they had a lot of writers and they were trying to get everyone to put a book out. I mean, just like Bethel or the International House of Prayer, um, they everything is about marketing. Everything is about how can we siphon um people and and rope people in you know so so they they really saw me as like an opportunity to do that and I just was too naive to realize that that's what was happening um so a lot of red flags started started coming up and and I started realizing that they didn't have people's best interests at heart and they also didn't have my best interest at heart and they there were multiple situations where I had to throw people under the bus that I cared about for the loyalty of the organization. And that just made me feel horrible. And then um, I saw some some abusive things happening to my wife and we weren't in a relationship at all. Yeah. At the time, we were just colleagues. We just worked together Um but we worked together very closely and um, it was very difficult for me to see. And I saw them blatantly lying about her um, and gaslighting her and, and doing stuff to her and then telling her that it never happened. And uh, all of these things were happening that were kind of building up. It, it was finally enough for me to see, you know, these are just not good people. And this is a really bad place. <laughs> like this, this is not good. Um, and yeah, so then my now wife and I um, started getting a lot closer. We started talking about the things that we were seeing and we got into a relationship um, and we were like, we got to get out of here. And we slowly started stepping down from the positions that we were in. And basically um, my parents, found out that we were together and they were like you gotta go you guys have like 20 minutes to <laughs> to pack and leave um if you're gonna be together they said that I could stay if I just wasn't with her um and I knew that I couldn't because I if I stayed I would have to stay in the cult too and it just wasn't you know it wasn't working at all for me um and I was also hurt because I was noticing all of these things that were happening in the cult that other people just weren't noticing um, and my parents didn't believe and they weren't noticing. And, you know, so so I was like, I have to go and I have to I have to leave. I have to leave and I can't be associated with these people anymore. I can't um, do any of this anymore. So, yeah, uh, we just left <laughs> and and we had to not talk to anyone anymore. And then they had a, a sermon about us where they said that we were like traitors <laughs> And all this stuff and told people not to talk to us. So we lost everything, literally everything all at once. It sounds like the only reason you were able to do that is because you had each other. And prior to having each other, you had nothing outside of this cult. So it was kind of finding each other despite 
the ways that the cult tried to control people, control who they dated, how who they associated with, make them afraid of each other, divide and conquer. Despite all that, you managed to kind of form this secret connection that was strong enough to sort of allow both of you to help each other flee. Hearing your story, this part reminds me of, um, did you ever see the Twin Flames documentary? Do you know? Yeah, well, I actually, um, I watched part of it because people kept saying like you really should watch this I didn't watch the whole thing um and then I watched a lot of people's in- interpretations of it on YouTube and what so I, I know the gist of it well, I don't know if you got to the part where they had people who were not actually in a great place um elected into sort of pushed into these leadership roles and made into examples so you know as, as you know, because you've, if you watched any part of this documentary, then you know that it's about this cult that preyed on people's desire to find true love. And um, and then, I mean, everyone should watch this film, especially if you're interested in gender issues, because they end up transing people to try to match people up. Because guess what? A group that's f- about helping people find true love is going to be mostly women, <laughs> mostly straight women. Yeah. So what do you do? You make some of them into trans men and tell them that that's their soulmate. Anyway, it's, it's a crazy story. But um, yeah, I just hearing that part of your story where you're like, you're told that you are this success story. You're still vulnerable. You're still young. You still yeah. haven't actually met a man that you're truly sexually and romantically attracted to you're not like yeah you're not a success story but they're like you you know you need to write a book on being an ex-gay yeah <laughs> um yeah this yeah it just shows like how vulnerable these cults really are how they're 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 operating purely on the psychologically con- psychological conditioning but they don't have any actual ground that they're standing on so so anyway you you fall in love you help each other get out of there. You have nothing but each other at this point. Um, that must have been a really shaky moment in your lives. And then I imagine from there that you like helped each other sort of process what the heck that was. I recently told you about a group called Do No Harm who's working to do just that. Eliminate the harm that so-called gender-affirming care for minors and political ideologies and medicine are causing. Do No Harm is made up of thousands of members across the country, from doctors to nurses to policymakers to concerned parents who see what's happening at practitioners around the country and are waving a red flag. Membership is free, and you get unlimited access to information from experts, on-the-ground updates from people working in medicine or state houses to take a stand, and collaboration with other thinkers. Learn more and sign up at donoharmmedicine.org slash sometherapist to learn more. That's donoharmmedicine.org slash sometherapist. What was that period of life like where you and your wife were trying to find your feet on your own? Well, uh, we were homeless at first. <laughs> we had nothing. Um, we didn't have food. We didn't have friends. We had we basically had nothing. Um, I had a car, so we had that going for us. And yeah, we we didn't have connection with our families or anything. So it was really hard. I did have some friends from up north. We were living in the south at the time, so we moved up north. Um, and I, I reconnected with people that I had not spoken to in years. 
and was kind of trying to establish, I guess, establish myself as a new person outside of the cult, but also I was reconnecting with people that I had been really close to when I was in addiction and stuff like that. So it wasn't really compatible, um, but it was also all that I had. So it that also kind of solidified this state of confusion and not really knowing who I was and not feeling like I was being mirrored properly by anyone or feeling as though I had ever experienced proper mirroring in my entire life and being in that state of dissociation and still in that state of trauma because now I don't know if my basic needs are going to be met. I don't know um, if I'm going to have a house, you know, I don't know if I'm going to have food. And, and so there was a lot of stress and pressure on both of us that, that made me feel even more desperate than I felt when I was in the cold. So you just kind of had to figure it all out from this really vulnerable position, not having any resources, just like figuring out how to survive as two adults in the world who you don't have a solid worldview or like operating system. Um, I can imagine like a culture shock element too when you're leaving this high control environment and then you're just out there in the world that you've been taught to fear because this cult has probably warped your perceptions of what it's like out there. So what were some of the ways in which you discovered maybe the world was not the type of place you'd been taught it was or well I think that I kind of went too far in the other direction at first with thinking you know I just left this place that I thought was safe and it was actually really dangerous and so then I was way too trusting with the world um and I I kind of rebelled in a lot of ways again and and was abandoning a lot of the progress I had made before. I mean, I didn't relapse or anything like that, but I um, I was breaking a lot of the values that I that I had developed and and slowly started to kind of build up that post uh, near death experience, like post overdose. Um, and I was drinking a lot again and and just prioritizing the wrong things. So it was hard because I kind of felt like the world was now my safe place, but I was engaging with it in a way that wasn't safe because I had never learned a safe way to engage with it. So it was a really complicated time where it just felt like years and years of trial and error. And then also because I had this built dependence on other people and I, I had been taught that I couldn't trust myself and that I wasn't a trustworthy person. I mean, that had been hammered into me from childhood because we're sinful, right? We're evil. We can't trust ourselves. And, and we need these authority figures to tell us what to believe and to tell us what to feel. So I think that made me very vulnerable when I was looking for anyone who could help me with leaving a cult and, and with um, trying to rebuild my life in the world and with trying to figure out who I was. Um, I became very vulnerable to whatever it was that they fed me, you know? And it's occurring to me that, um, you know, you and I decided during our, our break that we're going to do a part two because there's so much more to your story. Um, and I'm I'm not sure how much we're going to get into this today, but it's occurring to me like we've talked this far in your story. We haven't gotten into trans stuff at all. So I'm really curious. My mind is starting to fill in those blanks. But like, how did this vulnerable state lead to the the trans 
identity. I don't know if that was days or months or years between those different times in your life. I'm sure you're going to fill us in in a moment. I'm just like, you know, sometimes like the most the most vulnerable a person can be to a, an abusive relationship or a high control community is right after leaving another one. <laughs> because like you're, you're accustomed, like you, you just learned to recognize the warning signs you should have seen about the place or the person you just left. You're just like, oh, now I realize they were like this and like that. And and so that's your new map for what danger is. And then you have a totally inaccurate map for what safety is. And I like the way you put it because you're like, the way you put it sound like you didn't know how to find safety in yourself. You didn't know how to trust your own judgment, your own instincts, how to make decisions. And so, of course, that left you in a place where you're looking outside of yourself. And then you go from sort of flipping from my community is the good people and the outside world is bad to, oh, the community I just left is actually the bad people. That must mean the outside world's good. Meanwhile, you still don't know how to carry yourself in the world. So, yeah, you're just very vulnerable at that time. Um, so, yeah, how, how did all of that lead to the trans stuff? Was there a direct connection there or a gap? Yeah. So like I was saying with um, the conversion therapy stuff, I was made to feel like some predator of women or something. And so I think that in that way, I started to feel like other women didn't see me as a woman, but they saw me and interacted with me as a man if they knew that I was a lesbian. I kind of just assumed that that projection was happening. And so I felt very uncomfortable. I didn't know how to um, interact with women that were straight. I felt like they were going to think that I was preying on them um, or hitting on them or something. For example, you can see straight women and they're comforting each other if one of them's upset and um, maybe they're like holding each other or holding hands or something and there's nothing there. It's, it's just nurturing. It's just this platonic love. And I didn't feel like that was something I was allowed to have. Um, and so that was very, very difficult for me. I wanted those kind of like sisterly relationships, but it had been hammered into me that that wasn't something that I could have because everyone was going to think I was some predator or something. So I think that it really warped my mindset. And then on top of that, um, I, as a coping mechanism, had eating disorders and, and I had really bad body dysmorphia and that that triggered the eating disorders, obviously. Um, the way that I saw myself was extremely inaccurate for what I actually looked like. And I think that that was just a material representation of what was going on in my life anyway. It's like, I just couldn't see myself clearly. I had no idea who I was and, um, that had just manifested in this body dysmorphia. So dealing with chronic dissociation where I then have internalized homophobia and I have body dysmorphia and body issues and stuff. I had started binding and um, I, I had, I had like, I think I was going by um, probably they, them pronouns or something at the time. And for me, it wasn't necessarily gender related at the time. It was more so just that I had started to feel very uncomfortable with femininity. And I mean, why wouldn't I? I've, I've been told that, that I'm now this like creepy person or something and and made to feel very uncomfortable in, in myself because of that. And like I said, I started feeling like people were just seeing me as a man or something, but it still was not really this conscious gender dysphoria. 
So I ended up um, finally going and seeing someone who was supposed to be a dissociation expert. And I basically was saying things like, you know, my dissociation was really bad at the time. Um, I was splitting, but I didn't really know what that was. I actually didn't even really know what dissociation was. Um, I was being told that I was doing or saying things and not in the sense of, you know, I've, I've heard people say in the past, like, oh, that's really convenient to just say that you can't remember things that you said or did. And it's like, it's not like I was going out and doing something wrong and then being like, oh, wasn't me, you know, not going to take responsibility for that. I mean, I didn't, I genuinely didn't remember my own address. I couldn't remember my own zip code, my own phone number. Um, I would have these really bad episodes where I would be out in public somewhere and I wouldn't remember how I got there. So it was really, really terrifying. It was not, you know, the the DID stuff that we see on TikTok or, or anything like that. Um, it was really, there was no, there was no access to like a core self. I don't really know any other way of describing it. And, and I was in such survival mode that it was like all of the different parts of my brain that that we all have, um, there was no consensus between them. And it was just, it's like, I, I didn't have enough, um, consistency or enough groundedness. Uh, I'm not even really sure to, to be in, in more than one or two of those states at one time. So it was really ruining my life. It was making it difficult to go to work. It was making it difficult to maintain relationships and, um, so that's when I had finally reached out to someone and I was like, I know this is from all of my trauma. They knew that my head injury probably played into it because I had had, like I said, when I was younger, I had had a lot of um, mental health issues, especially around like memory and whatnot. And I had um, ADHD and OCD and, and all this stuff. And I knew that my PTSD from, uh, from the way that I was raised and, and the abuse I had experienced and all this stuff had really just pushed everything over the edge. So I was like, I need help for this. But one of the things that we talked about when I was getting help was the fact that I kept saying, I feel like a trans woman, which is really ironic because I was saying that I want to be a woman and I want to look like a woman, but I feel like I'm, I can't connect to that or I feel, um, like I don't look like one. And, and I, that was my way of trying to express that. I felt like a trans woman in the sense that I felt like I there was a disconnect between me and being a woman and I was trying to bridge that gap. That doesn't sound anything like I want to be a man, <laughs> you know? Um, it's, it's not, I didn't want to be a man. I didn't want to not be a woman. My whole thing was that I felt like being a woman was this unattainable factor. Um, and I, and a lot of that, like I said, had to do with the dissociation and the internalized homophobia and, and all of this stuff. And, and I didn't feel pretty enough and, and I had all these body issues and, and all this stuff. Um, and that statement was turned around and instead of it, it being, you know, it makes sense that you feel that way because of all of these comorbidities and, and all of your past trauma, things that I already know exist. It was. The response I got was, well, because my uh, my therapist at the time, who was a dissociation expert, also had DID, non-integrated DID. Um, and you're, you're yeah. OK, for those who are just listening, you put air quotes around dissociation expert. Um, but <laughs> you, you're saying your therapist herself, herself, yeah. herself had a DID diagnosis. 
And and was public about this, or you later discovered yes. this? No, it's public. Yeah. Oh my goodness, what a mess! And and I, I know there's more, and I cut you off, but just to acknowledge what you've said so far, I mean, you have all these reasons that you feel awkward as a woman, and it really makes sense given your life experience. And and you said that there was a lack of mirroring in your life, so I hear you looking for that mirror, right? Like you're you're looking for a sounding board to help you make sense of yourself, so you can see yourself more clearly, because you do not have an accurate sense of sort of the boundaries of where you you begin and end and what is you and how to integrate between these different states that we all move through. And so you're feeling very discombobulated. You're looking for some kind of grounding, some kind of accurate reflection for you to get a sense of yourself. And there's a huge missed opportunity because what you're saying, you're, you're grasping at something. And it, the job of a therapist is to understand what it is their client is trying to express. Um, and I often have this experience as a therapist where... Um, I just slightly rephrase what someone just said. And then they're like, I never thought of it that way before. <laughs> it's like, this is what you just said. Um, but they're often, you know, but there's often that they also say, you just hit the nail on the head. And that's like, that's what I'm looking for. I'm trying to make sure I'm on track, right? And and because that's part of the healing process is to feel like you are being accurately mirrored, that you get a more accurate sense of yourself so you can work through and understand your own perspective. Anyway, I'm obviously going off on a tangent right now, but there's just, you felt like a predator of women. You felt awkward about women because of how this cult had made you feel about yourself. And there's this huge missed opportunity for the therapist to help you put yourself together and understand what you were really getting at when you compared yourself to the experience of a trans woman. Like you're somebody who wants to be a woman. You're trying to pass as a woman, but you feel like you don't pass because women have been conditioned to fear you. That is part of your experience. And you've been conditioned to fear yourself around women, not to trust yourself. Um, oh, there's one other element of that story that really stood out to me, but I'm forgetting, of course. So I'm just I'm just going to let you get back to this, this story. Yeah, no, you're, you're completely um, on point with all of that. That's exactly what should have happened and instead um I you know I knew that she had DID and she kind of phrased it as you know these these are just different parts of ourselves that that all of us have which is true but we're not supposed to stay dissociated in that way you know um and she said to me I have a heterosexual part and a lesbian part and I have a trans man part and and all of these things and um and framed it to me as as me also having that like there was this projection where I had the same thing that she had and I believed that um and then yeah and and then she was kind of asking me questions about my childhood um my interests like things to affirm any any type of dysphoria or affirm um any other times where I didn't quite feel like a woman which again had nothing to do with being trans. I don't have gender dysphoria. To, th to this day, I don't have anything like that. And I just did not know myself well enough at the time to know that. So so that's how it was framed. And because of the state that I was in, um, I I just thought, well, you know, everything I, I had thought I'd known about myself has been a lie. Like I thought I was ex-gay and then that, that wasn't true, you know? So I, I was really just again, looking for someone else to tell me who I was, unfortunately. Um, and I 
believed it. And and then she said that she knew some people at a gender clinic and and could get me, um, she could get me over there and and talking to them and stuff. So I felt like I was going to be taken care of. I felt like whatever was going on with me, whatever you know was wrong with me, was was about to be figured out, I guess, and and fixed. So so you see this therapist who. I'm going to describe as having poor boundaries, um, a therapist with unresolved issues. Um, and this therapist sort of projects onto you, at least this is your take on it and sounds accurate, right? It projects onto you, ooh, someone like me. And then she could sort of holds herself up as an example as if she's a role model, like where she's like, well, look at me. I'm I'm a perfectly fine successful person and i am I'm split into all these parts um and you are like me but then there's also this element of like latching on to a narrative so on the one hand the parts framework you could look at it from more like a, you know if we set aside the pathology of did and look at it more like an internal family systems lens thinking thinking about it symbolically thinking about how we all have parts there is a world in which a therapist could think that way could think well i have these parts i have a part of me that's straight a part of me that's gay that's called a bisexual therapist by the way but um and i have a part of me that's <laughs> and i have a part of me that's a trans man okay so, so let's say you're thinking that way in a world in which that's a real thing um okay so there's a way that you can consider that as a symbolic thing where because these are all just parts of you um certainly doesn't mean you should just act on one of those parts right so in a world in which a part of you is a trans man okay fine whatever um that doesn't mean that that part of you should take over and make the rest of you permanently a trans man so there's a lot of like flawed logic here but but so she sort of projects onto you i'm like this and i'm okay i don't need help and look at you you're like me you should want to be more like me but then also kind of latching on to like the novelty and I'm, I'm almost wondering and I'm, I'm just speculating at this point but if she's like oh I caught a live one I, I found a tranny like I, I get a special I get a special patient that makes me a special right. therapist like there's something like uh there's a grandiosity that I'm picking up on or imagining is there anyway in the thought process of this person and then she feels like she's special or saving you or doing a good thing by being the one to find out that you are actually a trans man and then being the one to refer you to her friends and so and she's really getting a sense of like the ego of the therapist playing a big role here um and and we're gonna have to start wrapping up pretty soon um this this is i think a pretty good point in your story to um save for our part two um uh, listeners of this podcast will know I've uh, never done a part two before, but I've often thought that I really should have because some of my interviews are so long. Um, and today, just with the flow of the day and how many things are unfolding, I just asked Leighton during the break if we could actually turn this into a two part so we have lots of room. And fortunately, she's available later today to finish recording this. So I think we're going to pick up next time we talk on this moment in time that your therapist projects onto you, decides she's going to be the magical special savior of this poor lost trans person who just needs help discovering his true self. Um, and, uh, but 
before we wrap up this part, is there anything that you, any like loose ends from our conversation so far that you wanted to tie up? Well, I did want to say that um, your read was entirely correct because she now considers herself to be a transgender specialist, which is really ironic because if the first trans person, in quotes, you know, that that um, you help ends up detransitioning, that's something to look at, right? But but yeah, there's this element of, um, you know, I'm helping people that have DID like me, and that's that's like a niche. It's a weird thing that a lot of people don't experience but but I noticed this projection of um of kind of diagnosing a lot of people with DID you know whether or not they may even have those kinds of those elements um and that that again is I mean that's public that's she's put that out publicly it's a rare it's a rare condition so it's strange like I mean, yeah, if you specialize in it, then you attract people who are looking for that, but it's still kind of suspect. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then and then having this theme of specifically working with people that have dissociative disorders and then they all just happen to be trans. <laughs> right. You know, it's like preying on people that are so dissociated from themselves and then sending them over to this clinic to... Get more dissociated. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, totally. And and by the way, there is a fascinating article on the Pit Substack for it's a few years old at this point. Uh, that's pitt.substack.com. Um, it's like a two-part series. It's like called like the Trans Medical Taliban or something like that, written by a parent with medical expertise. Um, and they they look at some of the medical information that we have on trans issues, and they find that. Um, People who identify as trans, and I don't know if it's only people who've medicalized or people with gender dysphoria, but actually have less activity going on in the in the regions of the brain associated with mind-body connectivity. So that's a that's an indicator that yes, people with gender dysphoria are more dissociated. Um, but there's also a chicken and egg dilemma um, with regard to how. Um, you know, starting off with body dissociation can lead to identifying as trans, but also when you're in the trans thought loop pattern that a lot of trans identified people get into, you're actually making it worse. There's a lot we could talk about there, but I just wanted to kind of bookmark that. We're going to wrap up here. I'm so excited to continue our conversation for you and I. That'll be in a few hours for the rest of the world. It'll be in exactly one week. Um, thank you so much for your time so far, Leighton. Um, and just for people who are listening to this, who don't end up listening to next week, or just to make sure we take care of this now, where can people find you or where, where do you want people to find you if you do? Well, um, on YouTube, I'm on there as Psychic Somatics. And then on Twitter, I'm on there as Original Angel. But the L's at the end are the number one instead of L's. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit sometherapist.com or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners 
post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to, or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care, at NoWayBackFilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.